Hi everyone and welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart at the center of enterprise IT. Joining us this week is Anil Lakhani. Uh, he is a marketing exec, startup advisor, growth therapist and investor uh, who's done 25 whole years in technology with stints in engineering, product and marketing in big companies and startups. Uh, but these days he is taking a different tack and he's advising mainly B2B enterprise startups and VCs uh, based out of New York City. So welcome to the show, Anil. Thank you. And the first question I'm sure many of our listeners will have is, what is a growth therapist exactly? Huh. <laughs> well, the way I think about it is that if you've been doing this long enough, you end up really saying the same thing over and over again, and you have a lot of the same advice over and over again. It's just like tuned for a particular situation. And I found that when, uh, especially enterprise companies are thinking about growth or how they do go to market, they run into similar plateaus and bottlenecks. And, and often the answer is not complicated. It's just hard to come come to grips with. So the the function I serve is as someone, the founders or the VP of marketing or the chief revenue officer talks about this issue with, and I talk them through the thing they already know but don't want to say out loud and say to everybody else. And so I've begun to think of it in some ways as, as the function I'm serving is more as a therapist than anything else. You're the guy who talks about the dead moose in the corner that no one in the room wants to talk about. And you come in and it's like, hey, we can't continue this conversation because there's a dead moose in the corner. Let's talk about the dead moose in the corner. That's, That's right. right. And to the Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most Canadian thing you've ever said. And, and the thing is, thank you, thank you. I, I love talking about the dead moose in the corner. I, that's, so that's the first thing I want to do when I show up. Lots of uncomfortable people in those conversations, I, yeah. I would imagine. Often. I so, mean, you got to find out who shot the moose to begin with. And then <laughs> what happened? No, 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 no. There's, clean it up. there's <laughs> blameless moose Blameless. Death. Yeah. Ah, I see. The Blameless moose post yeah. it, it came to be dead in the passive voice Correct. in the corner. Correct. By the that time you've called approach. in somebody to talk about your problems, the moose is already rotting away and it's stinking the room, but no one wants to talk about it. Yeah, that's yeah. how. Yeah, yeah at this that is, point, how the moose yeah. died is the least of your problems. Yeah. It's yeah, the state of the carpet. Say. Yep. <laughs> so that's, okay. so that's why I, I use that term. That actually makes a lot of sense. It kind of tallies with another character I've come up with as the, the VP of Nope. And you see companies making these ridiculous decisions and just doubling down and doubling down. So at some point, there should have been someone in the room to just say, nope, and shake their head and kill this idea stone dead. And very few companies seem to have this role. It's a, it's a problem. It's, it's incredibly hard. To be no, you should person. not publish a blog post insulting half your employees. Right, but it's, <laughs> but it's but it's incredibly hard to be that person from the inside, mm. and it's incredibly hard to survive as that person on the inside. Right, In, inevitably, if 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 that is what you do, even if you are the conscious of the organization, the selection pressure within the company will will push you out over time unless you are protected. Unless you have like the grace of the founders or something, right? Or the board. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, why I said the VP of Nope. Maybe it should be the, the chief officer of Nope. Someone who's senior enough that they can get away with saying Nope, standing athwart the silly project. Yep. Okay. 
that that does make a lot of sense. Yes, so that that gives the people who bring you in some plausible deniability uh, to to share that idea. Um, but you work mainly with uh, startups uh, and mm-hmm. with VCs, so also kind of early stage. Uh, what do you see as the difference, uh, having worked in your past lives with much more established organizations, which is how we came to know each other? Um, what's the main difference from your point of view between the sorts of marketing and the sorts of ideas that startups have and the things that more established, longer duration companies might do? There are, there are probably a few big things. One of them is that what counts as meaningful at a large company and and large is relative, right? So I'm, so here by large, I'm thinking uh, 50,000 people and up companies uh, and, and, and this scales somewhat. What counts as meaningful at a large company is a much bigger TAM, total addressable market or, or a product with a much bigger scope or a feature um, that more people need or uh, an expansion plan that hits entire regions at a time. When for a startup, uh, what's important is how to get from 10 customers to 50 and how to get from 50 to 500 and how to get from 500 to 5,000, which at the scale of a big company, none of those numbers are, they're, they're not even rounding errors. They're completely irrelevant. So the way you think about everything and you approach everything is wildly different. And this is, by the way, the fundamental source of the problem that people have transitioning from big companies to startups or to small private companies is is figuring out what actually matters and doing that thing that matters as opposed to trying to apply a big company standard where the thing you're doing at the startup level is is essentially irrelevant. You wouldn't even think about doing it. You wouldn't even think about spending money. You wouldn't think about the amount of money five minutes of your time costs to even think about the idea because it's so pointless. It moves no needles. So I, I think that is probably the the biggest difference between the two from an abstract theoretical perspective. When it when it comes to the on the ground perspective, it is what kind of a campaign is meaningful, right? Like do we do we need to make the claim that we're changing the world or is it enough to make the claim that we've done a tiny incremental improvement to this one feature that's part of this one big product and and does it matter or at a very large company like incremental things are actually quite big and important and at tiny startups you you need to come out with this world changing thing every single time you come out with anything yeah i've been at little couple of dozen person companies and landing a single customer is a Massive celebration, whole company goes out for drinks, and you can all fit in one bar, so why not? And also, it's worth doing some pretty heroic things to land that one customer, because it's going to represent a significant percentage of growth. Uh, Adding one customer when you have 10, that's 10% growth. When you have thousands of customers, it's much harder to get 10% growth. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay. Okay. 
Um, so how do you deal with, how do you advise your customers to deal with a mismatch when you're at that scale, a couple of dozen people, and you're selling to much larger organizations? And this is probably oh. also uh, something Mike has opinions on being on the other end of it. Uh, we've talked before about what it's like buying from a startup versus buying from an established vendor with a multi-product portfolio and longer-term relationships. So yeah, how do you advise? Yeah. Yeah. And, and just one thing, like from my viewpoint, it's like, okay, we, you know, you, you, you like the agility that going with a startup offers, but at the same point, it's like, you know, we're a big organization. And if you're a big organization, the, the question that's always at the back of your head is, do you want to be customer number, you know, between one and 10, between 10 and a hundred, or do you want them to have traction? Because if this gets like, you know, real traction in your organization, then how do you, you know, and they fail, then what do you do? And it's a lot harder when you're a big organization to to make take that leap of faith with a with a startup. So so that's a bit like kind of where we think about it from the the enterprise IT perspective. Yeah, and there's a chicken and egg here, right? Like someone has yeah. to go first. Someone does, you know. Who takes that first leap, and how do you guys approach that? Right. Um, I would say one thing I often end up saying is that. In order to get someone to take that risk, you have a, you have to provide an order of magnitude improvement in something, right? It's not it's not enough that oh hey I can shave, you know five percent off the time it takes to do X. You you have to show up and say I can provably shave fifty percent off the time it takes to do X, or I can provably reduce your um, your expense ratio by Y, or I can provably improve your top line by z or or i'm i'll give you this we'll do a proof of concept for a thousand people for free just to show it to you right like you you have to be willing to go out of your way to prove that it's worth taking the leap for the first one two or three assuming the first one two or three aren't just friends of friends who do it out of the kindness of their hearts and are pleasantly surprised when you when you have something worth offering but but once you do that, then the next thing is, as a startup, you don't necessarily know what your value is, and you're you're generally going to be wrong about it. You're you're generally going to be wrong about what you think other people will perceive your value as, and you have to be willing to let them tell you what it is, and get it from them, uh, because the chances of you perceiving the world the same way someone at an enterprise company perceives the world are basically zero unless you just came out of that environment. And then if you can figure out what the value is and how other people think about the value, can you figure out how to be easy to do business with? Because a lot of startups can actually be quite difficult to do business with because the, the way they want you to do business with them is not the way you do business. And, and you're not going to change your procurement process for a startup. That's not happening. That goes in the other direction. The startup has to figure out how to deal with your procurement process. So oftentimes I have to have this conversation where I say, listen, even if these people want to buy your product a million times over, there are a thousand people standing between you and them whose job it is to prevent them from making bad decisions. And those people are called procurement, legal, finance, operations, etc. And you got to deal with those people. This is absolutely true. Um, I think one challenge that 
we have an enterprise like from a big company perspective when when these small companies come it's like hey just put your credit card in here i'm like yeah that's not gonna work for us uh, have you heard about this thing called a po and it just it breaks down right it breaks down and come it, on amazon lets you pay by credit card bitcoin call it even I think people assume that IT infrastructure people are doing that much more than they are. I think it's much more like the marketing departments going out and buying something, some SaaS tool, much yeah. more than it's the IT people standing up VMs. IT people are ops. They understand that, you know, if they break it, they own it. <laughs> and then you ask them, like, who clicked on the agree on all the terms and conditions? And that's when the room gets really silent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm the guy who really confused legal at a past job when I called them up and said, hey, I had this software bought for me, so that's dealt with, but this TNC looks very weird. Can you cast your eyeballs over it? And then I, this has never happened before. <laughs> I love that, Mike, as soon as you started talking, everyone started shaking their heads because they're like, oh, yeah, we've all seen this before. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Definitely. Um, okay, so... Oh, we talked about a couple of things. Getting that first customer is always going to be the hardest thing. And not just the customer, the reference customer, uh, the customer who's willing to talk about it in public to back you. So getting customers to cut your teeth on as a startup is very important. And as the customer number one, if you're on the buying side, you have to be very aware that that's what's going to happen. This is not going to be a smooth relationship. It's going to be a learning experience for both sides. So there has to be something extremely compelling in it for you. So to some extent, startups often end up buying their first customer, uh, right. giving it away for free, giving away a lot of consulting services. The benefit can be, of course, that you can have a, a huge amount of influence on the roadmap at this stage. If you call up Microsoft and you ask for a feature, there's, there's a long line of people asking for features. If you're customer number one or single digit, uh, you've got a good chance of materially influencing the roadmap and taking a, a large percentage of the engineering effort to making it work for your particular needs. And that that's kind of the flip side. But you have to have the appetite as an organization to do that. Yeah, the, I mean, your ideal case as a startup is that you have an early user who's a design partner, which is a, the term of art in the startup world, who is a perfect representative uh, example of, of who you think your target audience is and your target customer is and you spend months maybe a year with them where you make sure that your product aligns with their needs and 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 there's something that you can then go on to pitch and sell to other people who look like that that's the ideal case it doesn't always work out that way but, but that's what you hope for and this is, speaks to another difference, at least one that I've seen, but I'm curious about your view. The enterprise B2B startups uh, don't fit the stereotype that some people have of a startup. This is led by some you know, 20-year-old Stanford dropout in a hoodie. Uh, that can be true in the B2C world, but in the B2B world, it's more people who've been in the trenches and they've seen a need something that they themselves could have used in a past life or they've spotted a gap in the market where a product doesn't currently exist and they go and do that. But therefore, it's people who are already at a later stage in their careers, hopefully have at least some experience. What's your perception of that? How much of that is true? 
I think you're mostly right. I mean, that story does not make for good reading, right? Or or a popular TechCrunch article. But I deal almost exclusively with the B2B enterprise software kind of startups, even though most of them are software as a service in their operating and delivery model. And most of those companies are run by folks who have experience working at scale and to understand the problems that enterprises have. And or this is their second or third time around doing something similar. So they've learned all the lessons of building software for enterprise or selling to enterprise. And we should we should probably have a conversation about what the term enterprise is. Because it's not one thing. It used to be pretty much a monolithic idea. It is no longer one thing because Yelp is an enterprise. Yelp does not operate like JP Morgan, which does not operate like Macy's. Uh, but the but these are all very most Large definitely enterprises. enterprises. Yeah. 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 And this is why companies that sell into that space after a certain size, after a certain time, they tend to start to split out their offering by industry verticals because retailers are more like other retailers than they're like banks and banks are more like each other than they're like, uh, you know, whatever else, uh, internet age companies. And especially these days, and you mentioned SaaS, that's a, a huge thing. You might get companies that have a very large scale and don't actually own any physical assets beyond, you know, the MacBooks that <laughs> the, the engineers work on. I mean, they don't own servers. They have just a very large contract with Amazon or Azure or Google Cloud. And so that's a very different operating model as well if you're a startup to, to sell into. Yeah, it is. There's more often than not the conversation I push them to have is one about picking out a dimension like the amount of cloud usage you have or the amount of microservices in your environment or uh, whether you, whether you operate in an agile development framework as, as a better marker for what makes a good customer for them because it's as important for the startup to select out bad customers and not waste either the potential customer's time or their own time. As, as it is to, to figure out, you know, their value proposition and these other things. And usually the right customer is along a dimension that is not a from a graphic dimension or a vertical dimension or, or a more generic way of looking at companies. Usually you want to get specific to the point of, listen, our product is best for <clears throat> someone who uses uh, Kubernetes to deliver a consumer-facing service on a cloud provider like Amazon or Google. Anybody else is out. Yeah, and you can get specific. And But as you say, there's also the, the flip side of that. If you over-index on your early customers, you could get led into a blind alley or, or a TAM that's yep. just too small that won't support your growth plans. And then right. you have the painful pivot uh, around the, the second funding round where you have to figure out, okay, how do we get to the bigger TAM and we have to start from scratch. That's right, but but the, the, that's the that's what founders that's their job that's why they're there. How do you balance the fact that sometimes these really specific indicators, like you said, they're not firmographic. Firmographic is easy. You go to Dun and Bradstreet, you find everybody who looks like a monkey, and you sell them a banana, and it's great. Um, 
the truth is, I think you're right in that, like, a lot of times it's these more specific targeted use cases and, and situations that create a unique market and a niche for you to break into. But in my experience, that also gets counterbalanced by the fact that a lot of times the person you're calling on doesn't always necessarily know that answer, right? And and the analogy I'm thinking back to is back in the days of, of early virtualization, right? Like, you could ask people how many CPU cycles they needed, or you could ask them how many VMs they had. Right. And the, the latter answer was like they knew it in a hot second. And the former answer, like you could spend 16 years on that. Right. And nobody would give you a straight answer. Um, how do you balance the sort of obvious from the important metrics? This is a very good question. I'm going to I'm going to provide a very unsatisfying response, which is that trial and error is how you figure it out. <laughs> You just you you get you're wrong often, and then you're right. And when you're right, you try that thing again. And if you're right more, you try it a few more times. And if you're right more, you put everything behind it. Okay. Well, then I guess we haven't been doing it wrong all this time. <laughs> no, no. Every you know, people always post facto rationalize what's happened and apply a pleasing, like smoothing story to this, but. More often than not, it was just trial and error. Yeah, post hoc ex proctor hoc. But uh, that's, uh, again, a difference between enterprise IT and uh, consumer-facing B2C. Suddenly, it seems that there's a lot less of the messiah visionary type situation. Enterprise people tend to be a little bit more modest. They tend to have that beaten out of them early on in their careers. Before they go and try to uh, to change the world too much, so true. Well, there is, you know, I'll I'll counter that. There, I have there are plenty of visionaries in in the in the way you're using the term here that that operate in their space. It's just they have learned to present that differently, right? They don't necessarily lead with the vision and then stop. Because that that never works. Because then there's no path from here to there. I either either they they present something novel that's incremental or or marginal or even multiple orders of magnitude improvement in some small area, and then and then build up a story from there that leads you to a big change. Or they say, here's where we believe the world is going. This is what the future looks like. Here's how you can take advantage of and participate in that future. And then immediately go from there to here's where we are today. And here's a stepwise progressive path from here to there. And we are going to, we are going to help make this happen. And, and, that, and that, that is what creates the feeling of comfort and of, okay, maybe these folks know what they're talking about. And even if you know they fall flat on their faces or this product doesn't work in the first iteration, we directionally agree with them. So we're willing to you know go down the road from here to the next checkpoint. Yeah, yeah it's a, I can see the potential of this tech and therefore I'm willing to tolerate some incompleteness in the early stages as long as I trust the roadmap. Right. You know, there's there's always conversations we get into on the enterprise level with either... Yeah, software vendors or, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be software, but they're taking us through the pitch. And sometimes there's this one thing and this one thing we've been trying so hard to do. And 
they just glance over it and then we start digging into it, right? Asking questions. I mean, we try not to show our excitement towards it typically, but like, I think there's a lot of these companies that are selling software, doing whatever that they don't understand sometimes, you know, something that's so trivial for them is so hard for like a big company to achieve and, and it doesn't relate. And, and this must happen all the time. And I think that's part of the, the testing, but I don't know how many customers are really honest with these companies. I, I don't quite know. I, I don't know if you can share insights there, Anil. That's a super interesting point. And I've, I've never framed it that way or thought of it that way. I would say best case is 50, 50. And, yeah. and how, how, how the startup experiences this is as something that feels like there's a good opportunity here and and yet nothing happens and and that, and that, and, t-shirt. <laughs> right and and and, and that and that, and that could be there's a good opportunity with this one person but then it doesn't go beyond that one person or there seems to be a good opportunity for this organization and we talk about it for many months and they're just it, they're just slow right the big companies just slow there's a lot of process going to take some time but literally nothing ever happens yeah. and and it's 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 partially maybe it's because the people on the on the enterprise customer side don't just don't want to come out and say we can't we can't do that we're never going to do that there's no universe in which even if we believe in that future that that we're going to take a step down that path and sometimes they're just being nice or or sometimes it's it's the it's the you know the one visionary inside the enterprise who who delivers a false sense of other people being on board with their vision when that's just not true yeah yeah there's there's multiple layers of approvals yeah yeah on the sales side we talk about two different roles uh the coach and the champion and the coach is the person who gets your message, is on board with it, is excited, is willing to pass you information, but doesn't necessarily have the juice to make things happen. The champion is the one who is actually selling for you when you're not in the room, who is advocating for you, who is fully on board with that message and has the juice to make it stick. And you, you need both. But in a pinch, the champion is the one you can't do without. Champions are super interesting. I, I've worked with many startups where without champions, and sometimes both a technical champion and a business champion, they're basically dead in the water. They, they cannot succeed because a champion is performing. If, if you are a well-operating company that's mature, where you've gone through many sales cycles and you know how to pitch your product and you understand how to work with your customers, you you perform a function that is figuring out who needs convincing and going and pulling levers to convince them. Before you are sufficiently mature or experienced enough to do that, the champion who lives inside of the customer, who is a you know someone who works at your customer, does that for you. They're performing a sales function for you. They're performing a function that needs performing, and they're doing it for you. And two dangerous things happen with startups. One is they don't recognize that that the champion is critical and they have to have a champion. And if they cannot acquire a champion, they cannot close a deal. 
that 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 is that is a requirement for business to move forward. And if they can't yeah. do that, they otherwise stop. you're just caught in an endless loop of very positive right. technical conversations. Right. Everyone agrees it's wonderful, and let's do a pilot and evaluate and the POC. <laughs> yeah, right. And then the second problem is they they don't formally out loud explicitly recognize the champion is serving a sales function that they need to learn how to do that they cannot scale unless they learn how to do that and it's critical that they learn how to do that or that they learn how to groom champions either way that function needs performing and they got to figure out how to make sure it gets performed or or they're at an absolute limit yeah and Mike hates those people because they then come into his office and they say, oh, we got to buy this. we got to buy this, boss. Buy it for me. <laughs> no, but I, I'm just realizing where some vendors have turned me into champion, uh, a sales champion internally. Oh, but so, no. Yeah, it's bamboozled. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. It's terrible. The truth is you have to follow that path in most organizations, right? Startups, it's life or death. Um, and you, if you have the luxury of being an enormous enterprise vendor like Cisco or IBM or something, maybe you have the manpower to and the and the badge to your customer already and can do this on your own but if you're any even a mid-tier vendor selling a product into a new part of the business or cross-selling a product you have to execute the same kind of play right you don't have a natural in um and i actually think that it's forbidding for for salespeople. i think it's a real issue is how do you put people in a position that they're comfortable cultivating champions within an organization and finding new contacts and evangelizing to them and bringing them over to the to the side of of your product is that's just a non-trivial sales skill um and i I don't know how much the sandler trainings of the world solve for that truly i have no idea that you i i don't know how one develops that skill I've never tried to do it myself, and everyone I know who does it already knew how to do it. Yeah, it's hard to do consciously. I've tried. Uh, you can improve, you can train, you can skill up. I work with our sales enablement team in my current job pretty closely, and so I see from the instructor side of that. But people who come into that who are successful, they already have some innate ability or aptitude, definitely. Okay, so we're just about at the end of our time. So just to wrap up, do you have any thoughts about failure modes of tech marketing? What's some common pitfalls that you can advise people to to avoid? Or just some funny stories and pratfalls that you've observed? Oh my God, or bottom-up bottom up, um, enterprise SaaS? Well, I kind of hate bottom-up enterprise SaaS because then it puts us... Um, in a tough position, but um, if you could share anything there too, you, yeah. Yeah, Mike, secrets. That's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. But it, it's, uh, it gets, it, you know, let, let me be honest. I mean, I think one of the worries that enterprises have on, on you know, bottom-up SaaS offerings is there are some software vendors who have taken tactics over the past years that have really put purchasing and sourcing um, in, in bad positions. So when bottom up comes, it's like, okay, let's rip, let's rip out the software sometimes and, and replace it with X, Y, and Z. And, and I, yeah, I, I hate to say it, but I think that's exactly what's, what's happening in a, in a lot of cases, unfortunately, but yeah, that's just my experience, right. And experience I hear from others. So I will tell you that 
if you were a B2B software startup today and you want big funding rounds, you almost have to be bottoms up. And I put that in air quotes because ultimately at scale, that's not how it works. But that is the pitch you need. That's a go-to-market motion you need. And that's that's what people need to perceive to be happening regardless of whether or not that's how stuff happens on the ground. So there's there, that's a big factor in why this is the way it is right now. On the flip side, uh, bottom, bottoms up is not scalable from a sales perspective for enterprise. Bottoms up is a marketing thing that you can do, which is to say you appeal primarily to the end user, not their boss or their boss's boss or the procurement department. That's legit. But that is a separate thing from how you price, how you scale a sales organization, how you do deals, how deals get bigger. These things are basically divorced from each other and people should not confuse them, although they often do. I would say that's, I, I would say that's absolutely true, yeah. To, to answer Dom's question, um, the, the, one, the one thing I'll say about not pratfalls, but a common failure mode or anti-pattern that startups have that they often change or fix over time is taking an extremely technical, functional, egocentric view of their product or their offering and how they talk about it, which is to say it does A, B, and C, and A, B, and C are objectively good, and that's sufficient, and everyone will recognize that. Two, taking a, oh, what are your needs as a customer in your day-to-day work life? How am I retiring one of those needs, if you will, and making that part of your life better? Let me talk to you about this problem that you have that I can alleviate and maybe what I discover is half of the way I alleviate is great and the other half is crap and I should do better. Well, that's very much the difference between a CTO pitch and a marketer's pitch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the audience as well for those two. Uh, so this has been, and I certainly have found it instructive. You've given me some food for thought. I hope the audience have also enjoyed that. And... If the audience want to hear more from you, they should follow you on Twitter at Anil, A-N-E-E-L. Uh, so good job on snagging that one. Uh, I have completely failed, despite starting quite early, to snag my any of my usual nicknames on Twitter. But thank you so much for taking the time. It's been wonderful. Uh, I will let you get on with the rest of your day. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Anil. For the audience, please do follow the show on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise with a number four or on our LinkedIn page, the links in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you will find the link to my good friend Renato Podesta, who composed the theme music that should be playing under my voice right now if all has gone according to plan in the edit. Please do send us suggestions for future topics and or guests. Thank you once again. Talk to you next week.